Welcome back to our study of the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is one of the books of the Torah in your Old Testament. That is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And those five books of the Bible are known as the Law of Moses. And of course, it begins in Genesis with the creation account, but then quickly from Exodus through Deuteronomy, the other four books talk about a formative event in the history of the Israelites. From their going from Egypt as slaves into the promised land as a new nation. As we look at the book of Deuteronomy, there are a lot of laws. There were 613 laws in the law of Moses. And Deuteronomy is a retelling of that law. And so it's, it's a book of commandments and rules, some events, but mainly commandments and rules. And so the question is, how best can we understand it? Well, there are several important themes that come out of the book of Deuteronomy, but I've chosen the theme of justice to be our overarching idea. And as we go through this, we're going to see elements that lead to, in the next few lessons, a very robust dis discussion about what actually is biblical justice, particularly compared to modern ideas of justice. There are huge differences, but I think it will help explain what's going on in our world today and why, as Christians, we feel very much out of place with some of the things happening. Let me take us to uh, the theme of this particular lesson. It's want to look at something that happens early in the book of Deuteronomy as Israel is about to enter the promised land. Israel is effectively becoming a nation. And what I want to focus on is how do you forge an identity as a nation. So for example, you might say, well, boundaries, borders. I mean, you have borders and you say, okay, within this area, that is the nation of Israel or Romania or whatever. And it's a nation is defined by borders. That's a very modern idea, by the way. In ancient times, certainly in the time we're going to talk about around 1400 BC, Nations weren't formed by borders because borders were always expanding and contracting. So, for example, the nation of Egypt or the kingdom of Egypt or the Egyptian people were constantly trying to spread it. So if you said, okay, what are the parameters of the nation of Egypt? I'd say, when? Because borders weren't the defining element. Uh, is it government style? Not necessarily because many nations throughout history have been organized in different ways. As uh, think of the Roman Empire, it began as a republic, it became an empire, etc., etc. And so, what is the unifying idea for a nation? I'd like to take this opportunity to look at the forging of the nation of Israel in 1400 BC to see what are some of the elements of identity. Today, we think of identity as a group, whether it's a nation or a group of people, in very different ways than you're going to see in the biblical text. This is a quote from an article Tim Keller recently wrote on the idea of secular justice and critical theory, but I wanted to pull this one point out to say in modern terms, modern critical theory or postmodern thinking, 
Neither the individual rights nor individual identity are primary. Traditional liberal emphasis on individual human rights, private property, free speech, for example, is an obstacle to the radical changes society will need to undergo in order to share wealth and power. So from a postmodern view, this is what's prevalent in, well, I don't know if most people hold this point of view, but it certainly is the, the overriding idea behind most of what you'll see happening in our country is this idea that the old liberal idea, and when I say liberal, I don't mean this in a political sense. I simply mean in liberal democracies. So Europe, America are liberal democracies. What does that mean? It means there's an emphasis on you as an individual. You matter. You have an identity. And you have certain rights, uh, rights to property, free speech, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That is what's called a, a liberal view. It's what was undergirding most of the nations in Europe and the United States, certainly the United States. Think um, explorers into the American West. Think about mountain men by themselves going up and trapping furs and living their lives. They're individuals with their own identity and pursuing their destiny. But that traditional liberal emphasis is considered an obstacle to the changes in society we will need to undergo if you value the sharing of wealth and of power. And according to this view, it is an illusion to think that as an individual, you can carve out an identity that is separate from or independent from others in your race, your ethnicity, your gender, etc. Group identity and rights are the only real ones. That's a great description of a postmodern way of looking at identity, that you as an individual don't really have an identity. Your identity is whatever group or groups you find yourself in. And that can be many things, uh, ethnicity, gender, uh, there are a lot of different groups, but you'll be able to quickly think of the ones that are most prominent today. Well, that is one way to forge a group identity. The question is, is it a durable way to form a group identity? And when we get into discussion of justice, when we get into the laws in Deuteronomy, which we'll do in our next lesson, we're going to really talk a lot about what you think about justice is tied very closely to how you find your identity, but I want to save that for the next time. What I want to talk about right now is how did God construct an identity for his people? And I want to look at it in ancient times, and then I want to move forward and say, how is he doing it today? So let's start with uh, the map we used last time, but I just want to remind you where the Israelites are. So they came from this area, Goshen, Marking on the map here, they've been slaves from about 1800, I'm going to round these dates off, about 1800 B.C. till about 1400 B.C. And over that time, they hugely multiplied in number. They came to Egypt as 70 people. They were the children of Israel. So let me tell you what that means. You have Abraham, his son Isaac, and his son Jacob. Jacob had, was called also by the name Israel. And so those 70 people were Jacob, Israel, and his sons and wives and grandkids. 400 years later, there are a million of them. There are a lot of 
Israelites. So the children of Israel are literally the children of Israel. But they're broken into 12 tribes, depending on which one of the sons of Israel or sons of Jacob that you're descended from. But they still have some sense of, of identity loosely, very loosely. But they're slaves in Egypt. This is the book of Exodus. And so God brings them out, sends Moses to bring them out. They go to Mount Sinai, southern end of the Sinai Peninsula, likely, the likely location of Mount Sinai. They get the Ten Commandments, which appears in Deuteronomy as well as in Exodus. And then they spend 40 years, an entire generation, camping, moving, wandering in the wilderness. When we say wilderness, we mean desert. God provided for them in the desert. And what happened in the desert was God began to instill in them trust in him. I've said before that it, it didn't take God very long to take the Israelites out of Egypt, but it took 40 years to get the Egypt out of the Israelites, the slave mentality, the, the gods of Egypt, and to trust the one true God. After 40 years, the Israelite people come up the east side of the Jordan River, and they camp there, and they're looking in at Jericho, which is in Israel. They're on the other side of the Jordan in what's today the state of Jordan. And Moses is about to die and hand off the next phase to a young man named Joshua. But before he does, he repeats the law. Remember, 40 years earlier, they had received the law. This next generation, he tells it to them a second time. That's what Deuteronomy means, a second telling of the law. So that's where we are. That's what is going on. So what is it that forms the identity? How is God going to form Israel into a nation? Again, don't think he's going to say, okay, you all live in this area. You're a nation. That's not what makes a nation. It's not even what makes a nation today. I mean, it's one of the reasons in the Middle East you have problems with uh, the, Iraqs, the Iraqis and the Kurds. The problem is there were some artificial boundaries drawn saying that's the nation of Iraq. Well, the people that live there say those are Iraqis and we're Kurds. We are not in any sense a nation. We have no identity together. So how do you form that identity? Let's go to the book of Deuteronomy, and I want to look at some of the elements of forming an identity. The first one we talked about in our last lesson. The greatest commandment is this, Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Or, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. I'll stop there. So what is this saying? It's saying, first of all, God exists. There is only one God, and our response to God is to give him our complete and total dedication. Our heart, our soul, our mind, our entire beings should be devoted to God. That is the foundational confession of the Jewish faith. It is the foundational idea of their identity. And that is, we are the people who say Yahweh is our God, Yahweh alone, and we will love Yahweh with all of our heart and soul and mind. And so there's this fundamental confession of faith, this fundamental allegiance to a shared common God. And that's step number one, is a shared truth. 
They all believe the truth of God's existence, what God has done, and their relationship to God. Love the Lord your God. And so this fundamental truth, and I want you to hold that idea for a minute, is the first step in building this identity. Let's look at the second step. In uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7, God says this to the people. And because you have to ask, if you are God's chosen people, if the Israelites are going to be related in some way to God, known in some way by their allegiance to God, how does this happen? Look at this interesting passage in Deuteronomy 7. For you are a people holy to Yahweh your God, to the Lord your God. Holy simply means you have been pulled out, set apart, and you are different. It doesn't mean that God doesn't love anybody else but you, but it means you have been called out for a special mission, for special treatment for God's purposes. You are a holy people. The Lord your God has chosen you. And I want to highlight a couple of ideas here. You have been chosen by God out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other people. In other words, this wasn't a merit contest. Like, okay, best military. Oh, you're the winners. You're my people. It wasn't because you're the biggest nation. They were not by any means the biggest nation. If that were the case, it would have been the Egyptians or the Hittites or uh, perhaps the Chinese at that time. Pretty big, not much of a nation per se at that time, but a lot of people there. In other words, he said it wasn't because of any merit or achievement that you had. He said, for you were the fewest of all people. Verse 8, but it was because the Lord Yahweh loved you and kept the promise he swore to your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, the king. Now, this is where things get really different. So radical historical departure in this discussion about identity. The first element is the shared truth. Obviously, in this case, it's a shared truth in the existence of God and your relationship with him. The second thing is, is that you have an identity because all of you were chosen. I mean, imagine for a moment that you get a note from Publishers Clearinghouse Sweepstakes, and it said, you need to be at Crossings Church at 6 o'clock on Saturday, and you come in, you sit down, and there are maybe eight people, and they say, you have been chosen out of 300 million people in America, and you're each going to receive $10 million. Well, how do you feel? You feel like, okay, well, we are the winners. I mean, there's, it's not a strong sense of identity, but you are here because you're chosen. That's really unusual. No other nation thinks that in the sense that uh, we're special people because we've been chosen. We were handpicked, and that's how we became a nation. But that's what God said, you're chosen. And then perhaps an even more radical departure is he said it wasn't because of anything you did. It wasn't because you were better looking. It wasn't because you were taller, more numerous, more capable, got a better score on the ACT exam. God chose you because he loved you. One-sided, unilateral, I am going to look after your best interest. In the Bible, love is a decision. 
It's not a feeling like God woke up one day and said, those pesky little Israelites just love those little rascals. It's not the way this happens. In the Bible, love is a decision. It's a commitment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind is total commitment. That's love. And this is what he's saying is God loved you. In fact, God loved you first, and he chose you. So now we're, you can see that this idea of biblical identity starts to look very different than anything you've seen in history, anything you see running around the world today. It's this shared truth. It's a sense of having been selected, chosen, because God loves you. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, he gives them this shared memory. He's, he's knitting them together. He said, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years. Now, stop and remember, most of the people he's talking to are not the people that walked through the desert. A whole generation lived and, and prospered and you know, had children and played in kiddie soccer leagues and, and everything, and 40 years later, most of those people have died at the end of their life. So most of the people he's talking to didn't really spend 40 years in the desert, but they remember what God did with them and their fathers and mothers and their grandfathers and grandmothers. He said, remember how Yahweh your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years. Why? To humble you and test you in order to know what was in your heart. Remember, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. To know what was in your heart, whether or not you would obey that you would keep his commands. In other words, do you actually love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind? He humbled you, causing you to be hungry, but he fed you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, meaning you didn't farm it, God gave it to you, took care of you, but he humbled you, caused you to be hungry, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. This is saying something fairly subtle, so I'll, I'll hit this and move on, and that is that this chosenness, this love from God, this common truth of love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, this is sustained not by your prosperity. In other words, if you are a rich people, you are a poor people. You're going through great times, you're going through really hard times. You're in you know, uh, a Silicon Valley boom, or you are in a Depression-era bust. None of those affect who you are. What I say to you affects who you are. In other words, your identity is not linked to the events that happen in the world. It has everything to do with the relationship between us. And then finally, he says, And now, O Israel... This is Moses again speaking to the Israelites. What does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways? That means more than keep his commandments. That means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind and desire to be like him, to follow him, to walk in his ways, to live in his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today for your own good. And so the identity of the nation of Israel is based on something that's historically very different from anything else, and I would argue very different than what is today, and that is the shared truth. 
You were chosen because God loves you, and you have a shared mission to walk in his ways and be about his business in the world. The events in this world cannot deter you from your identity, which is fulfilling God's will for you in this world. That's essentially what held Israel together. Well, did it work? Was it better than borders? Was it better than anything else? In fact, it is the most durable sense of identity, I would argue, that our world has ever known. And it's for this reason. If you think about the Israelites coming together 3,400 years ago, have they always been in the same territory? Oh, heavens no. Have they even all lived in the same area? No, they were spread all through the world more than once. Should they even exist? No, they should have disappeared from the pages of history in 600 B.C. And they should never have come back together. And yet they come back together as a people still defined by this common truth, the fact that they were chosen and loved by God and they share this mission to walk in his ways in the world. They should not be here. This should not have lasted. And yet this is the most durable identity. So even today... 3,400 years later, you have Israelites, we call them Jewish people today, but Israelites who are still have an identity through all those centuries, all those millennia. I would argue that no other sense of identity built on anything else has lasted that length of time. So it is indeed a very durable bond, a very strong way to forge an identity. What I'd like to do next is I'd like to move to the New Testament. And I want to build a bridge. I want to take this idea of identity. Now, in our next lesson, we're going to take identity and we're going to start talking about justice. But I want to pause here for a minute because I want to go from 1400 B.C. to the time of Jesus and the time of today. And I want to talk about how is God forging his people into a, an identity today. God's people today are definitely not defined by any borders. They're not defined by ethnicity or gender or race. They're not defined by any of those things. They are scattered throughout the entire globe. They aren't defined by a common language or anything else. So how is God building the identity of followers of Jesus Christ, his people, today? Let's look back and see, because I want you to see, as we move from Old Testament to New, the connection there, the parallel. There are unbelievable parallels. Let me show you what I mean by that. I want to take you to Matthew chapter 3. Let me tell you what's happening here. Very early, uh, Jesus basically, I'll show you on a map here in a second, but basically, he's 30 years old. I'm putting several things together from the Gospels here to tell you this story. He's 30 years old. He begins his ministry. And one of the first things he does is he goes to the Jordan River where John the Baptist is baptizing. He gets in the Jordan River and John says, you are the Lamb of God. How can I baptize you? And Jesus says, let us do everything according to the way it should be done. Why? I'll tell you in just a second. He gets baptized. He comes out of that river. And here's what happens. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was open. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and hovering over him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am pleased. 
Then Jesus was led by the Spirit, he was prompted by the Spirit of God, into the desert to be tempted by the devil, or Satan, that fallen angel in rebellion against God. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. That's probably the biggest understatement in the entire Bible. Okay, he fasted for 40 days and nights, and he is pretty hungry by the end of it. So what's happening here? I want to show you on a map physically what's happening, and we'll make a couple of uh, comparisons spiritually here in just a second. So let's, I want to take you in 1400 B.C., this is where the Israelites were camped out, east side of the Jordan, right across from Jericho. Book of Deuteronomy, Moses tells them the law of Moses, uh, gives them the law. They begin to forge their identity in their shared truth, their chosenness, the fact that they're loved by God and the fact that they've been given a mission to walk in God's ways. And then, under Joshua, the next book in the Bible, they come into the promised land to take possession of what is today the nation of Israel. Fast forward, time of Jesus, what we just read. Where is that happening? This is happening as Jesus comes down to this area right here where John is baptizing, somewhere in this little stretch of the Jordan River. He goes into the Jordan River, he's baptized, he comes out, he goes into the desert, and Jesus spends 40 days somewhere there where I've drawn that circle in the desert. What's happening here? Jesus is recapitulating. He is reenacting, and I don't mean reenacting as in he's making it up. I mean, this has been God's plan all along. Jesus isn't trying to imitate the Exodus. The Exodus happened to preview what Jesus was going to do. What does he do? 40 days in the desert. How long were the Israelites in the desert? 40 years. A time of preparation, if you will. In this case, a time of temptation for Jesus. When Jesus finishes the 40 days, what does he do? The scripture says he crossed the Jordan River, he goes into Egypt, or into Israel, pardon me, and what does he do? The gospels say he began to preach, repent, because the kingdom of God has arrived. In other words, come and join, come and be identified as God's people. Jesus is doing exactly what the Israelites did 1,400 years ago. They did it in a nation-building physical generation of people forming an identity kind of way. Jesus is doing it in a cosmic, I am going to form a nation, a kingdom of God's chosen people. And it won't be by ethnicity, and it won't be by geography. But he is literally reenacting what happened 1,400 years before. Interesting thing happens here. I want to talk about this temptation because there's a real connection here in the temptation. So let's move forward and walk through that. So the tempter came to him and said, so devil appears to him in some form or fashion. We don't necessarily know what that is, but the devil came to him and said, if you are indeed the son of God, how does he know that? He heard the voice. Tell these stones to become bread. What's he saying? He said, listen, if you're really the son of God and you can create everything out of nothing and this is all yours, I know you're really hungry. Why don't you just make one of those stones bread and then I'll believe that you're actually the son of God. He's tempting him, isn't he? Jesus answered, 
It is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. You're thinking, wait a minute, I just heard that. It comes from Deuteronomy 8. Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 8. Now, there's an interesting clue here. Why does he quote Deuteronomy 8? Now, this is very intentional, as you'll see on Jesus' part. Jesus has got two games going here, one of which the devil gets and one of which the devil does not get, does not understand what's going on. On the surface, he says, ah, I see you quoting Scripture back to me. Yeah, clever. So in other words, you're saying that you're going to be obedient to God, you're not going to go do some parlor trick and turn this stone into bread. Could Jesus have simply said, no, you can't tempt me. I serve God. He could have said that, quoted nothing, just said that. But he quotes this. So point number one, let's move on. What happens next? Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, had him stand on the highest point of the temple. Temple was really tall. Uh, I mean, much taller than you think it was. It was a huge, magnificent building. Had him stand on the highest point and said, if you are the son of God, I mean, you say that, but seriously, I need something more than that. I need to see some credentials here. Then throw yourself down. You quoted scripture, let me quote some scripture to you. And he quotes this passage from Psalms. He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. He said, you quote scripture, I quote scripture. And that is that it really, if you are the son of God, then if you throw yourself down, the angels will catch you, and you won't be hurt at all. Jesus answers him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Where does that come from? Deuteronomy chapter 6. Again, he simply could have said, no, you can't tempt me. I'm going to serve God. But instead, he quotes Deuteronomy. He says effectively that, doesn't he? But he does it by quoting Deuteronomy. The devil's frustrated at this point. He's like, oh, aren't you just the great little memory verse kid? I'll bet you got all kinds of awards and awanas for memorizing Scripture. But finally, he pulls out the big guns, and he says this, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all of the kingdoms of the world, all of their splendor. He said, I own all these people. They've all sinned, they're mine. He said, I can give you all of this. If you will just bow down and worship me, you can be in command of the entire world. And Jesus says, get away from me, Satan. It is also written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended him. That's another quote from Deuteronomy chapter 6. So on the surface, the devil realizes, I'm tempting you, and you're basically saying no. And the way you're saying no to temptation is you're quoting me some scripture like, oh, aren't you a good boy? But notice, he's quoting scripture from the very, very part that we're talking about. And that is Deuteronomy 6, 7, and 8. What's happening in Deuteronomy 6? seven and eight. That is where God is defining their identity to them. And what Jesus is saying to him is, I'm saying no, but if you were a little smarter, you would know where these came from and you would say, wait a minute. Are you telling me that what God did in 1400 BC and rescued his people from those Egyptians that I had persecuting them, I was going to destroy them, killing all the firstborn babies. Are you telling me, by referring to Deuteronomy, that you're here to take my captives 
and set them free. And Jesus goes, if you were only smart enough to know, you would know that not only am I saying no to you, but I'm talking and I'm referring to how God set the captives free. He took his people out of slavery, brought them to the promised land, and that's exactly what I'm about to do. The devil understood the no, but I don't think he understood the reference. And so you see the parallel. Jesus very consciously understands what he's there to do. What you saw in the Exodus, which was an unbelievable historical event, he said, you haven't seen anything yet. I'm going to build a kingdom that will never cease, and my followers will never die. So you see the parallel for what's happening there, taking the captives to the, to the freedom. So Jesus says, I came to assemble a people. You know who those are? Those who confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. They're Christians. They're followers of Jesus Christ. There are those who love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. They are those who want to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, just like Israel, completely devoted to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Look at what the Scripture says about our identity, and I want you just to remember and see God is doing this. He, he staged a play, if you will, so that you could then understand the cosmic reality and the truth of what he's doing. Look at what's going on in this passage. I just chose Ephesians. A lot of places in the New Testament are, you're going to see this exact same thing because it's obvious what God is doing. But notice this. He chose us. Ah, we're chosen. We share the common truth, don't we? That Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, the one true God. We agree with Deuteronomy 6.4. The Lord our God, the Lord alone, the Lord is one. And we should love the Lord our God. When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. He's saying, that's always been true. You may not be Israelites, but that is a part of your identity. Second thing is, just like they were chosen, we too. He chose us in Christ, in him. Him refers to Christ. Before the creation of the world. I mean, let this sink in for a minute. We are chosen people, again, not because we're the smartest, fastest, best-looking, most numerous, not because we even look like each other. The followers of Christ, God's chosen people today, speak every language, from every ethnicity, from every gender, from every race in this world. And yet he chose us, why? The same way he chose the Jews. He chose us to be holy set apart in love because he loved us. He predestined us to be adopted as his children through Jesus Christ to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given to us in the one he loves. We share the truth, we are chosen, and we are chosen in love. We are chosen by God's grace. What does it mean to say God's done something by grace? It means God is doing something for no merit on your or my part. I have to confess to you that I've gotten grace in college a couple of times, although most of my professors were legalists. They actually thought you should do the work to get the grade. I know, very old-fashioned idea. But the point is, every now and then something happens in your life, you go, I did not deserve that and yet look what happened. Or, I deserve for something bad to happen, but it didn't. It's God's 
grace. It's purely one-sided decision, love for us, that he chose us. Same idea, isn't it? You notice the parallels? But now he's doing it on a cosmic scale. For the praise of his glorious grace. And then the final thing, the truth, chosenness, his love for us, and then finally, the mission. Do we have a mission? He, for the Israelites, he said, here's what God requires of you, to walk in his ways. Be like him, act like him, love like him, forgive like him, work like him, become like him. Listen to this. I'll stay in Ephesians. So I tell you this, and I insist on it in the Lord. In other words, here's what you need to do. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do. You can't live your old life, not in the futility I mean, the worthlessness of your thinking, the things you thought, the things you were about. You used to think identity came from all kinds of stuff. But no, your identity comes from a shared truth, the fact that you're chosen and loved by God, and here's what he's given you to do. He says, "Have uh, you, however, verse 20, let me skip forward, did not come to know Christ through sensuality or impurity or lust. Surely you heard him and were taught in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self. In other words, you're going to die to your old self. That's the way the New Testament talks about it. The way the Old Testament talks about it is you used to be slaves in Egypt. Now you have been chosen and loved by God and you will walk in his commandments. Here it says it this way, put off your old self, being corrupted by desires, be made new, this is more than just being freed physically from slavery, like you used to have to do what the Egyptians told you, and they were making your lives really bitter and hard, and now you get to go in and farm your own land, and you get to, to make your own choices. You get to be free physically. Jesus says, no, you're not just going to be free physically. You're going, in fact, you may not be free physically. You're going to be made new. You are going to be ultimately and truly free in the attitude of your minds. In other words, this truth will change everything about your life. You will put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. This is the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament command to walk in his ways. There it was very behavioral. In the New Testament, it's behavioral, but only as a result of true, real change. So what happened in Deuteronomy was to physically free the slaves, bring them into the promised land where they would be free, and give them the commands of God to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and walk in his ways. Jesus Christ comes and reenacts this on a cosmic scale. And he says, you are chosen by God because you share this truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. You have been chosen by God. He has loved you, and he has made you brand new so that you can be like God in your righteousness and holiness. Think of what's happening in Deuteronomy in terms of identity, an identity that is endured for 3,400 years and counting. Think of the people of God, the church, Christians. These are, these are basically synonyms for those who follow Christ. Our identity is forged the exact same way. We are who God says we are. We were chosen before we were born, before we were born to receive God's love and to pursue his business in the world.
And I want you to, to think about that idea of identity, because as we go on, we'll look at the Israelites, but as we begin to talk about justice, it's going to be founded very much not on your ethnicity, not on your gender, not on your race. I'm talking about biblical idea of justice. It's not going to relate to the boundaries of your nation. It's not going to relate to any of those things. It's going to relate to your identity in Christ. And when I say identity in Christ, what do I mean? The shared truth, chosenness, the love of God, and the mission he has given us in the world. This coalesces us in a durable way that can never change. That's what Christ means by having an identity in Christ. It's not something that circumstances can change. It's not even something that time or history can change. And in fact, and this is what's really unique, it's not even something that death can change. Next time, we're going to look at the identity of the Israelites, the nation of Israel, and what God tells them, what are these commands, and why in the world did he give them some of these commands, and how do they relate to the idea of justice in the world? And then, once again, we're going to step forward, and we're going to say, God's people today are the followers of Jesus Christ. We have an identity built on the same things. What does God ask of us, and what does justice look like in our world? And that's our lesson next time. I hope you'll join me then.